from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., this is Update One, the club's official podcast. It features newsworthy stories originating from the NPC facilities, as well as broader topics related to journalism, communications, press freedom, and transparency. The International Center for Journalists here in Washington has just published a lengthy report on online violence against women journalists. The editor is the organization's director of research, Julie Possetti, who joins us on this edition of Update One. I'm Irv Chapman, a longtime member of the National Press Club. Dr. Possetti has been a reporter and presenter for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and digital editor for Australian newspapers. She then became an academic researcher for the Reuters Institute for the Study of of journalism at the University of Oxford and the Center for Freedom of the Media at the University of Sheffield. She earned a PhD along the way. Dr. Possetti, from which university? <laughs> the University of Wollongong, which means in an Aboriginal dialect between the mountains and the sea. Dr. Possetti, Julie, how toxic has the internet become and how much more toxic is it for journalists, for women, and especially for women journalists? I've been writing about the toxicity of online communities for five, six, seven years now. Over that time, it has become increasingly obvious that the situation has worsened considerably, particularly for women journalists, particularly for women journalists who experience other forms of discrimination besides misogyny. So women journalists of colour, Jewish and Muslim women journalists, it is exposing women reporters to significantly more online violence and with significantly worse impacts. How much more toxic can it become? I think, you know, society as a whole has been turned more toxic, at least, you know, democratic discourse has been significantly affected by what's happening in the online space. And I think now it's impossible to separate the two. So you have this sea of toxicity. Social media, as you say, has become an outlet for racism, anti-Semitism, anti-vaccination, election denial, deep state conspiracy theory. On a scale of outrage, where do you place misogyny, hatred of women? Oh, well, at least equal <laughs> to those. I mean, I think one of the problems that we've uncovered is that misogyny has not been uh, treated as a form of hate speech um, in many of the countries that we've studied where there are laws designed to protect the Jewish community from anti-Semitic hate speech, to protect the Muslim community from Islamophobia. And we've even found cases where trans women can find protection because transgender identity is protected under certain anti-discrimination legislation. But being a woman and being subjected to misogyny on the basis of your sex is not necessarily protected. So I would say that it's certainly you know, a significant trigger for hate online, just as it has been historically offline, but it is not necessarily regarded as significant as racism, for example. So a woman of the majority race of whatever country is basically on her own. If she could have, for example, claimed some kind of protection which caused her government, if it was a rights-respecting government, to go to, say, Twitter or Facebook and to regulate in such a way that her rights as a white woman, let's say me sitting here, I'm a white woman, in the UK, where I currently live, if I was being brutally harassed online on the basis of my sex, I could not claim any kind of protection. Otherwise, you know, if I, if I was a woman of colour, I could. 
Well, in this country, the government doesn't spend much time jawboning social media. Well, the problem that we have is that um, particularly, say, Facebook and Twitter are US-based companies where there is a very strong tradition, thankfully, of respect for freedom of expression. It's enshrined in the Constitution. But one of the battles that we have to be able to win to ensure that particularly women journalists or journalists of colour, journalists who are discriminated against on the basis of any other kind of disadvantage, for them to be protected, there has to be respect for the notion that you cannot have freedom of expression if hate speech is shutting down the speech of those who are being targeted. And I think that there is a quiet progression of understanding in the US context about this, and we're starting to see that with the legislative responses that are being discussed and debated with regards to the platforms. So, for example, looking at how you treat algorithms, you know, they are not necessarily innocent. Algorithms can drive hate, and they do drive hate. So there are some creative approaches to regulation that are being explored in this country, which I think, you know, are promising. But what on earth happens when a billionaire takes over the space that is home to most journalists internationally when it comes to a social media space that they use to communicate their work, and that's Twitter. Are these threats being borne out in incidents in real life? Yeah, look, this is one of the really troubling and I think important findings from our work. So we surveyed over 700 women journalists and we we interviewed over 150. And in both the survey respondents and the interviewees, we found uh, significant evidence of online violence, as we refer to it, uh, spilling offline. Now, with the survey respondents, 20% of those 700-odd women we surveyed around the world said that they had experienced offline abuse, harassment or attacks that they attributed to the online violence that they'd experienced. Now, what they meant by that is that they saw not just correlation but also causation. So they could experience things like, and they gave us some examples, being in a shopping centre, doing their grocery shopping and and being yelled at using the language of the abuse that they experienced online. We had one example of a journalist in Northern Ireland, a woman called Patricia Devlin, who had been really brutally trolled online, rape threats, death threats, threats against her children, and she saw her name spray-painted with the crosshairs of a gun on a wall graffiti in Belfast. She was investigating paramilitary-related criminal activity. So those are just two examples. We had many other examples that included one woman being punched in the face in the context of a hashtag (laughs) being used to verbally abuse her. So there were many examples that demonstrated the figure that I still find most startling from the survey, which was this 20% of the women surveyed said that they directly connected the online violence with the offline harm. So this should trigger real concern, whether it's you know with regulators, with news organisations, with whoever's responsible for responding to this. We've had some of the networks employ security to protect some of their female correspondents at political rallies who have to go to the ladies' room. Yeah. The demonisation of journalists per se is a significant problem. The way in which that has attracted kind of mob-like harassment of journalists in online spaces is a significant problem. When you layer that with misogyny and you get misogynistic hate directed at women journalists, then you are going to experience 
this kind of you know, sexual harassment, uh, which can include stalking, which can include an invasion of privacy, which is quite threatening, like being followed into the toilet. You know, there's an entitlement that comes with treating women journalists, particularly with, with disrespect, based on the top-down threats that you get from presidents and prime ministers and political leaders with the online mob essentially directed or inspired by that sort of rhetoric to pile on. And then that, in its physical manifestation, is not a very long jog. If I'm unhappy with your comments, if anybody is, how easy is it for me to get on my computer and threaten you with bodily harm or even with death? And you don't even have to get on your computer. I mean, we're both sitting here with smartphones. The thing is, the hate machine is so portable. On the one hand, it's great that you have access to technology that will allow you to communicate across time zones instantaneously for all sorts of good reasons, whether it's because you want to collaborate on a journalistic project with somebody on the other side of the world, or you want to talk to your family, in my case, in Australia. This is great. But Essentially, these tools can also be used to generate hate, to generate incitement to violence, and also to create such confusion and such disrespect for facts and for processes that are designed to ensure that we all have access to accurate, reliable information, which has been the job of a journalist, the job of a scientist, you know, the job of an academic. And so, yes, we, we, you know, we are in a situation where Every single human has access to tools, whether that's their own tool or or close proximity to a tool, that will allow them to instantly, with potentially global reach, say whatever they like about anything, which can include incitement to hatred, incitement to violence, and also disruption to democracy on a scale that we haven't seen since World War II. Nancy Pelosi has been the target of vicious attacks, and Republican commercials accuse Democratic candidates of being her abject followers. Similar commercials appeared when a portly gentleman, Tip O'Neill, was Speaker of the House. How much worse is it now because social media didn't exist in O'Neill's day or because Pelosi's a woman? Politicians have been targeted historically before social media. Male politicians have been targeted. Female politicians have been targeted. What's different is that as with disinformation and hate speech, you now have this real-time networked response where disinformation and misinformation designed to mislead society generally can gain traction and become almost unassailable, no matter how false it is. So that's on the one hand an issue of facts and trust that are connected. Then on the other hand, you have misogyny, which is as old as the witch burning, and you see that being newly enabled through what we call networked misogyny, so where groups of largely male contributors to the internet will pile on and they will often target a woman based on her physical appearance, her social standing, they will belittle, they will demean in ways that are recognisably different from the sorts of attacks that men receive. So yes, people made fun and continue to do so, Donald Trump's hair. But when a woman is typically attacked, she is frequently accused of being sexually unattractive, of being promiscuous, of being, to use a hashtag that is common globally, a prostitute if she's a journalist. So, you know, these horrible kind of sexualized forms of abuse are marked out as as being reserved for women in particular. Prostitute? 
That's a new one I haven't heard at the National Press Club. It's a, it's a shocker, and it's, it started in India. It's used quite prolifically against journalists like Rana Ayub in India and, and Maria Ressa in the Philippines. It's also used in Latin America, and it really does highlight the way the loathing of the press for all politically motivated reasons that we see the press being brought into disrepute and misogyny. The journalists you interviewed described complaining to Facebook and other social media as an act of futility. On a previous podcast, we heard about their inadequacy in dealing with election denial. What should they be doing to protect journalists from abuse? Social media companies, yeah. Recognising that the safety of journalists is actually a precondition for press freedom, and the press freedom is enshrined in international human rights law. I mean, it's respected in the US under the Constitution, and that in order to preserve press freedom and to ensure that, as is required by international human rights law, journalists can do their jobs safely and without fear, then there needs to be an appropriate form of rights-respecting regulation. Now, I know that's a very difficult discussion to have, particularly in the US, something that the Europeans are working on trying to deal with. But I say this as the starting point because self-regulation has not worked with the platforms. Because as the women said, it has been an act of futility because we block, we mute, we report, and nothing happens. They keep coming and their desire is to shut us down, they being the hate mongers online. Now, what that requires is, at a very basic level, many more human moderators, people with specialist skills who have a, a degree of expertise on freedom of expression and specifically press freedom, which is a protected kind of freedom of expression. And also, you need people who understand the gender aspects of online violence in the same way that gendered violence offline requires a degree of expertise, you know, in the police force, for example, for investigating sex crimes. So you need those kinds of expertise. And you're talking about multi-billion dollar companies here. There's no shortage of funding to be able to support this. The other point that's really important is that these kinds of capabilities need to be available in every language in which these platforms operate. So especially, say, in the US, you know, there needs to be Spanish language capability, but that would serve people of Latin America and Spain and elsewhere. So th there needs to be a lot more money and expertise invested in dealing with this problem. You seem to think they won't do any of this unless it becomes against the law or regulations. That is my conclusion, yeah, and not just my conclusion, it's the conclusion of the many women journalists we interviewed and other experts that we interviewed as well. I mean, there's been a 10 years of this head-banging debate <laughs> um, and we've gotten virtually nowhere. And despite, I say that, despite acknowledging, as we did in the report, that Twitter had actually made substantial progress in at least acknowledging and trying to deal with some of these issues at a peripheral level and committing to more time and resources being devoted to addressing the problem. And now, you know, in the past few weeks, we have a takeover situation where the kind of self-declared free speech absolutist in charge now is signalling that despite wanting to protect himself from parity, he does not necessarily respect the human rights of other users. 
What about the newspapers and networks that employ more and more women? Is anybody handling this issue well? And if so, what are they doing right? It's a good question. And, and improvements have been made. You know, in the past five years that I've been researching and reporting on this problem, five to seven years actually, there's been an increased awareness that's measurable. The BBC, for example, in, in the UK, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation is another example I can give you where progress has been made. I can't hold up one institution and say... Here is an example of exactly how to do it. But a number of larger international news organisations, on the one hand, have made progress, and that could be through recognising the mental health impacts of online violence and starting to provide better and more targeted support for women who've got post-traumatic stress disorder connected to online violence, for example. The exemplar newsrooms that we've talked about have done things like ensure that senior leadership acknowledges in a public way, institutionally at least, that this is a problem. Other organisations have recognised something that I think is undervalued, and that is the need to speak publicly in defence of their journalists on the platforms where they are being attacked. And that's something that is uncomfortable for many, particularly Western news organisations, where there is a reluctance to kind of enter the fray. But I think one of the, the issues highlighted by the interviewees in particular is that they felt so exposed and they felt so abandoned by their employers in the midst of attack. And sometimes they were punished themselves, you know, and asked, what did you do to trigger this response? And why did you say X or Y? in the context of ongoing hateful targeting. It's not always as an employee of a large globally recognised brand that you are targeted, like the New York Times or the Washington Post, for example, where various improvements that I just mentioned have in patches occurred, better focus on security, for example. But if you are in a small news organisation, you can also hope for change. And I like to point to Rappler in the Philippines, which is the organisation started by Maria Ressa, which I began studying in 2014, well before um, it had become the pariah of, of a Duterte regime. They are a, a nimble and innovative outfit, and they recognised as soon as Maria Ressa started being targeted that there was a networked attack and that they needed to think creatively in response to this. And so they use a big data journalism approach to tracking the abusers, but they also recognised how important it was to build relationships directly with the audience that they trusted, to try and leverage that audience to support their reporters in the context of online attacks. They also very quickly connected the dots between physical security, digital security and psychological support and have systems in place in a newsroom that's much smaller than anything that global brands might recognise. So there are examples of improvement, but a lot more still needs to be done. I've been speaking with Julie Posetti, Research Director for the International Centre for Journalists. I'm Irv Chapman for the National Press Club in Washington. Thank you. You have been listening to Update One, the official podcast of the National Press Club, the world's leading professional organization for journalists and a vigorous advocate of press freedom worldwide. If you have any questions or comments about Update One, send an email to updateonepodcast at gmail.com.